Today's scripture reading will be coming from 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And it reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you know, after the, um, after the Constitution of the United States had been accepted and, and ratified, the United States of America, as we know it as a sovereign government, um, was officially born. And the colonists at that time, they were, they were feeling pretty good um, with the prospects of this new nation and this new experiment that they had begun. Though some of them, uh, even some of the founding fathers, were a little uneasy about its immediate security. Benjamin Franklin um, was one who was, while he was optimistic, was nonetheless a bit cautious. And to that regard, he wrote a letter to a friend in 1789, and the letter said, Our new constitution is now established, and it has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, we know nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. That's where that came from. Did you know that? Nothing in this world, said Benjamin Franklin, can be certain except death and taxes. Well, beloved, while death and taxes appear omnipotent and appear insurmountable, the Bible, on the contrary, reminds us and teaches us that there are other certainties. In fact, there are some things that are even more certain than death and taxes. The Bible reminds us of a few of these indispensable certainties that we find in God. There is a certainty of God's existence. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And from the very beginning, the Bible asserts and proclaims the existence of God. In fact, fact, the Bible reminds us that it is the existence of God that is the only explanation for the existence of anything else. John chapter 1 
verse 1 and through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with, he was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him and without him. Not anything made that was made. If anything exists, you can be certain, the Bible says, that God does. The certainty of God's existence. That's not the only certainty the Bible gives us. Uh, the Bible also reminds us of the certainty of God's promises. Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. The Bible says, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. No, the Bible makes clear over and over again that God's word is established from old and that God keeps his word. He says what he means and he means what he says. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, the Bible says that God is not human, that he should lie, not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill it? There's uncertainty of God's promises, the certainty of God's existence. There's also the certainty of God's will. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The Bible makes plain over and over again that the Lord our God is the sovereign God. All he desires to do, he does. All he determines to accomplish comes to pass. God's will is always done. Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us that our God is in the heaven. And what is he doing? Whatsoever he pleases. The certainty of God's will Certainty of God's promises, certainty of God's existence. There's also the certainty of God's grace and forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we're familiar with it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Rest assured, the God we serve is a gracious God and a merciful God, and he is ready and he is willing to forgive all those who come to him by faith, and you can be certain of that. There are many certainties that the Bible gives us concerning God. In fact, our text this morning is another example of the certainty of God. Just as the Bible reminds us of the certainty of God's existence and the certainty of his promises and the certainty of his will and the certainty of his grace and forgiveness, it also reminds us of the certainty of God's judgment. 
just as we can be assured that there is heaven for those who trust and believe. The Bible reminds us also that there is a hell for those who don't. We are reminded of this over and over again, beloved. And Peter here is, gives no exception to this. Remember earlier that Peter had shared with the saints to whom he is writing the certainty of God's provisions, right in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Talk about the certainty of God's provisions. And then in chapter 1 and verse 19, he, he talked about the certainty of God's word. Last week in chapter 2 and verse 1, he mentioned the certainty of false prophets. And then he also reminded them of the certainty of many people following them in verse 2. False prophets and their success, we all saw last week, right, could be discouraging. And no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, many, many might be led to doubt the truth and to even question the faith. Some may even be tempted to believe the lie and follow the false teachers. Because of the certainty of false teachers, the certainty that many will follow them, now Peter says, not so fast. Not so fast, because not only are we certain that there are false teachers, and not only are we certain that many will follow them, but don't be discouraged and don't be dismayed by their proliferation. Don't be discouraged by their prosperity and popularity because you can also be certain that their punishment is coming. So don't be discouraged. We know they're popular. We know they're prosperous, but also know that God is going to punish the wicked, the unlawful, the false prophets and the false teachers. And so there are two certainties this morning I want to share with you from our text. The Bible gives us this morning it is indeed the certainty of judgment. There's a sobering certainty of judgment. But then there is also the certainty of rescue. The certainty of God's judgment and the certainty of God's rescue. You see the certainty of God's judgment here. Beloved, we are we should be reminded and often are reminded that God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God, and indeed he is. And yet he is also a just God. And those who transgress his law and his will will not be excused and will not go unpunished. And this, the Bible reminds us in our text, is especially true of false teachers, of, of those who pervert the truth of God for their own selfish 
and greedy and lustful gains. And Peter wants to hammer home this certainty so as to encourage the saints, beloved. It's not to scare the saints, it is to encourage the saints that you don't stop believing, that you don't give up, that you don't follow the lies and the fake news. But you hold fast the faith that has been delivered once and for all to the saints. And to encourage them in this, he reminds them that God's justice is coming. And he will punish the false teachers and the false prophets. And to prove the certainty of God's judgment and to reassure the saints that God is not going to ignore the lies. He is not going to dismiss the hypocrisy. He is not overlooking the fake news. Our text this morning gives us three examples from the Old Testament that proves the certainty of God's judgment. Remember what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says, reminds us that what we read in the Old Testament is not just history. What we read in the Old Testament is also examples. Examples for us to heed Examples for us to listen, examples for us to live by. And Peter pulls upon these examples so as to remind the saints and to encourage them, don't give up and don't stop believing. And the first example he uses is the fallen angels. In verse 4 of chapter 2, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. God's judgment against sin and rebellion, beloved, the Bible reminds us here, is not just limited to the material world. All that God created God owns. All that God creates, God governs and God judges. If there is world outside of your world, it is created by God. And God owns it. And God governs it. And God judges it. Including the angelic world. Angels, the Bible reminds us, are spiritual beings that the Bible tells us were created sometime before human beings to serve God and minister to God's people. They are ministering spirits. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11, when Jesus was out in the wilderness and being tempted and by the devil, and after he resisted the temptations of Satan and sent Satan packing, 
The Bible says in Mark 4, 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Because that is their position. That is the purpose for which they were created, to be ministering spirits. And they minister at the pleasure of God for the purposes of God. And they minister to Christ. But not only do they, did they minister to Christ and they minister to God, but they also minister to God's people. This is the point in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Speaking of angels, the writer of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And the answer to that question is yes. It's what angels do. That is what they're supposed to do. It's what they were created to do. To serve God and minister to God's people. Unfortunately, the Bible also reminds us that some of these angels followed the rebellion of Satan in the beginning. And rather than engaging in the ministry to which they were called, they engaged in forbidden and even unlawful acts. You see an illustration of this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. The Bible says the sons of God, speaking of these angels, saw the daughters of men were attractive. And they took for their, for their wives any they chose. It's absolutely amazing, beloved. Posing as men, these angels took human women as their wives. And rather than serving God and ministering to God's people, the boundaries between angels and humanity were violated. In Jude chapter 1 and verse 6, again making reference to this occasion, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, left their proper calling and place in God's order and creation, he therefore has kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness until the, ju the judgment of the great day. In other words, beloved, they did not stay in their position. They sought to usurp the authority of God. And this has been the plan of Satan from the very beginning, beloved, to undermine God's design. It's to undermine God's creation. Satan here sought to produce an ungodly line of creation to oppose God's godly line. And yet the Bible reminds us that God was not ignorant of Satan's design. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and, and verse 11, the Bible says that we should not be ignorant of them as well. And if you are not, if you are not ignorant of Satan's designs, and if you are not ignorant of Satan's purposes, then you won't be discouraged by false teachers. For as God passed judgment upon the angels, this is what Peter is saying, God will pass judgment upon the false teachers. 
Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41 reminds us that the false teachers will hear Jesus say in the end, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God is not ignorant of Satan designs, nor is he ignoring rebellion, nor is he looking over lies and hypocrisy. And the point then this morning is this, that angels, no matter how lofty, no matter how beautiful, no matter how articulate, no matter how appealing, are subject to God's judgment and against their sin. And if angels, how much more false teachers? Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. The God who judged the angels is still God, and he will judge those angels who appear as light before his people. Not only did he use the illustration of fallen angels, but he also used the illustration of fallen humanity. There's a second illustration here in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Again, again, here is Peter using another reference from a well-known Old Testament event, illustrating God's judgment against unrighteousness, God's judgment against rebellion, God's judgment against sin, namely Noah and the flood. Now, beloved, I think Peter here is just ramping it up. He's ramping it up a bit because you understand to destroy the angels is one thing, but to destroy all humanity and creation is another thing altogether. For the angels are not as dear to God as humanity is. The angels are not the crown of God's creation. Humanity is. The angels are not created in the image of God. Humanity is. The angels are not the recipients of God's redeeming love. Humanity is. Even this humanity, the crown and glory of all God's creation, beloved, is, was, is, and will be subject to divine judgment. And Peter makes this point. Using the illustration, following upon the fallen angels, following on the heels of the wickedness of the angels, he references again back to Genesis chapter 6, again in verse 5. You think the angels were bad. 
The Bible says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The ancient world, as Peter called it, had grown cold, indifferent, callous and rebellious toward God. And, and, and perhaps like the false teachers, they had grown to believe themselves above the law, without constraints, autonomous, without consequences for their actions, believing themselves almost to be like God themselves. You remember Jim Jones? the false teacher and madman of Jonestown in Guyana, before he killed himself and most of those who followed him, he declared, I am a God, and you can be a God too. But over this is the end of false teaching. This is the design of demonic influence upon false teachers to get them to believe that they are like God. God had created human beings for his glory. God had created human beings for his pleasure. But we see in Genesis chapter 6 that these human beings upon the face of the earth had turned their lives away from the glory of God and begun to self-glory. Turn their lives away from the pleasure of God and begin to self-pleasure rise. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 may be the strongest statement in all the Bible concerning the fallenness and depravity of human beings. In Genesis chapter 3, right, the Bible reminds us that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 6, what you see is the rotten fruit that the sin of Adam and Eve produced. And it had come to full fruition. And God determined that he had had enough. He had been gracious. He had been merciful, but he is also just. And he will not hold guiltless those who transgress his law, trample it underfoot, and treat him as nothing. And if, this is Peter's point, 
if all creation was subject to the righteous indignation and the all-consuming judgment of God, how much more will be the judgment of false teachers? Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. If God judged the earth once, beloved, he will do it again. Don't stop believing. Don't stop trusting. If he did not withhold his restraint from the angels, and if he did not withhold his strength, restraint from creation, he will not withhold it from the false teachers. And then he gives another restriction, as if the first two were not enough. And then he gives another illustration in verse 6. And by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Peter's third illustration of God's judgment, again, is a reference to a familiar Old Testament story of God's judgment, namely his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, Peter's picking the big ones here. The flood with Noah, the water judgment of God upon the earth, and then the fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Beloved, Sodom and Gomorrah were, were great cities. They were popular cities, popular destinations. You need to understand that there is a reason why Lot chose Sodom. Lot chose Sodom because Sodom was rich. Sodom was fertile. Sodom was productive. But it just wasn't fertile and productive and rich in resources. It was rich and productive in debauchery as well. It was rich in sin. It was rich in defilement. And we understand what the Bible is making a point here about the depravity of Sodom. I mean, today, sodomy is not a pleasant word, beloved. And yet, it is taken from the city in the Bible of Sodom and its reputation for sinfulness. Everyone, I mean, when Peter wrote to them about Sodom, everybody knew Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody knew Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like Vegas. What happens in Sodom and Gomorrah? stays in Sodom and Gomorrah. And not only did everybody know about the debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody knew about the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. 
is referenced several times in the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9 and 11. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Everyone knows, beloved, everyone knows the story in Genesis chapter 19 of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and how the Lord rained down fire and brimstone upon those cities in judgment against their sin and debauchery. And Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6 that he did that as an example of what is going to happen. To the ungodly. So it's clear, beloved, it's clear. The certainty of God's judgment is clear. The ungodly, beloved, are those who disregard God. The ungodly are those who say there is no God or, or live and teach contrary to his will. Peter is doing this, comparing, comparing the judgment against false teachers to the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah is serious. And everyone who heard it would have understood the sobering and serious reference. You wouldn't just throw around Sodom and Gomorrah. This should remind us that there is no mistaking how serious a matter false teaching is. And beloved, God is not selling wolf tickets. As someone has rightly said, what Peter is saying here, if God doesn't judge the false teachers, he's going to have to wake up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize. That's how serious Peter is saying the issue is, beloved. And make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is guaranteed. God's judgment is true. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, beloved, there is nothing that is escaping the righteous judgment of God. Numbers, chapter 14, verse 11. The Bible reminds us, doesn't it, that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But don't get it twisted. He will by no means clear the guilty. He won't. He won't. Those who transgress his law and those who live contrary to his will snub their nose at him and use the twisting of his truth for their own personal Lust and greed and gain, God will not hold them guiltless. 
His judgment is coming and especially acute on those who lead others astray by propping themselves up as messengers of his. This is what he said in Revelation chapter 2, speaking to the church in Thyatira. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 20. For I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, because you do know that's what most prophets are, they self-proclaim. That's what prophets are, they self-proclaim. They call themselves prophets. Who else is calling them a prophet? They call themselves prophets. They call themselves prophetess. And you tolerate this and this teaching and thus seducing my servants to practice self, uh, sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And notice the grace of God in it all. He says, I gave her time to repent. I gave her space to repent. And she refused. She repented not. And therefore, behold, I will throw her unto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, beloved. This is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As he did in Peter's time, as he did with the church in Thyatira, as he is doing now, he is giving all these false prophets and all these false prophets space and time to repent. The time to repent is now. The time to repent of following them is now. God is gracious. God is merciful. And he gives people space to repent. But if they refuse, he is just. And he is righteous. And he will rain down judgment upon them. I know, beloved. That's, I know that's hard to hear. I know that's why you're quiet. This is hard to hear. The Lord knows how. The Lord knows when, and the Lord knows who to judge. There is nothing, beloved, and no one that is hidden from his sight. But more importantly, more importantly, the knowing who and when and how to judge 
is that you and I also know that he knows how and when to rescue. And there you see it in the text. If you didn't get all caught up in the Sodom and Gomorrahs and get all caught up with the angels and Noah, you will see in the text in verse 9 that the Lord is certain to rescue. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Beloved, I want to suggest to you this morning that this here is really the point of the passage. This here is really what Peter is getting at. He is building this huge case so that you would see how merciful God is. You think that his judgment is terrible, and well you should, because the more terrible the judgment, the more gracious the mercy. And he who knows how to judge also knows how to save. And he saves, beloved. I mean, this is the point. More important to God's people than the judgment of God is his mercy and grace toward them. This reminds us. You read this passage, you know what this should remind us. It should remind us that God's judgment is always, always dispensed with grace. There's always this intermingling of judgment and grace in the Bible. It's amazing. If you read through the Scriptures and you see the judgments of God, God always gives glimmers of hope even as he is pronouncing judgment. See that in Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, where he tells Adam and Eve, but of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But then just one chapter later, after they had eaten of it, after they had fallen under judgment and condemnation of God, God says, but I will put enmity between you and the woman in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even as the promise of judgment came, so did the promise of redemption. Even as he promised condemnation for this sin, so also he promised a savior. And this should remind us, beloved, this should have, you should have this idea in your head that God's judgment is sure, that God's judgment is inevitable, but thankfully God's judgment is not inescapable. It is not inescapable. And you see this again and again in Genesis chapter 6. We just read it where the Lord said in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And what does he say in verse 8? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There it is. It's always, it's always being inter 
mingle, beloved. His judgment, but then as his judgment has come, look, look for it, look for it. There is his grace. Would you come to him? His judgment is inevitable, but it is not inescapable. For the Lord always provides for his people a way out. If they would just turn to him. And he does so again in our text this morning. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. Later God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to the ungodly. But then in verse 9, what does he say? So you see... The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials. Beloved, this is amazing. How even in the midst of God's judgment, the righteous can be saved. And so this morning, beloved, I want to encourage you to, and remind you that this is a passage of encouragement. This should be a passage of encouragement to you. It should be a passage of encouragement to you because you should place yourself at the mercy of God's judgment. A couple weeks ago, as we were beginning to open this series of messages here in chapter 2, Somebody came up to me because they knew that it would be on false teachers. And he said, Pastor, you going to call names? You going to call some names? <laughs> and beloved, I don't, I don't call names because names are not the issue. I mean, if we're honest this morning, some of us used to follow false teachers. If we are honest this morning, some of us have friends and family members still caught up in following false teachers. And the word that I want to give us this morning is to realize, beloved, that you and I are not better than false teachers. And our sin is as worthy of condemnation as their sin is. And so understand this morning that God doesn't save you because you are better than false teachers. God saves you because you believe in Jesus and not yourself. That's what he reminds us. That's what he reminds us in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is what? He's safe. He's safe. He's safe. Noah, safe. Lot, safe. You and I, safe. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence 
and his children will have a refuge. The Lord knows. The Lord knows, beloved. He knows who needs to be rescued. He knows when you need to be rescued. He knows how you need to be rescued. The Lord is able to rescue. This is what Peter is saying. The Lord is able to rescue. Notice how he says it. The Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. The Lord knew how to save Noah. So he sent him an ark. He said, Noah, the flames, the flood is coming. You need to be saved. So he sent him an ark. The Lord knew how to save Lot. He said, Lot, the judgment is coming. So he sent him an angel. Angels. And they said, Lot, let's go. And Lot said, oh, no, no, wait a minute. And they drug him out the city. Because the Lord knew how to save. He knew when to save. And he knew who to save. He knows how to save you. He knows what we need to be saved. He knows what to do for your rescue. He knows. He knows. He knows. This is why... Beloved, listen, listen. We all didn't get saved in the same manner. We all didn't get rescued at the same time. We were not all redeemed by the same people. But all of it was orchestrated by the same God. He knows how. He knows when. He knows who. The Lord is able to rescue, beloved. He knows that we can't save ourselves. He knows we have no ability. And thus all he asks for us to do is to trust in his. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, for everyone, you see that, beloved? Everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, everyone. And he's able to do it. He's able to do it. And that is a certainty. If you call upon the name of Jesus this morning, you will be saved. Because not only is he able but the Lord is willing. He is willing. He not only knows how to do it, he's willing to do it. He's willing to do it right now. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, the Lord desires all people to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. And because of that, beloved, because God is so willing, because there is such a wideness to his mercy, and he is so willing to save all those who call upon him, behold, Jesus can say in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. 
Do you see the willingness of God to save? Do you see how wide his mercy is? Jesus Christ, beloved, is not a reluctant Savior. He is willing. He willingly came to earth. He willingly lived the sinless life. He willingly endured the shame and died on the cross. And he willingly shed his own blood. And every day, every day, he willingly keeps saying all those who come and call upon his name. He's a willing Savior. He's a willing Savior because Savior is his name. You want to know how Jesus knows to save? Because Savior is his name. Beloved, Savior is in his blood. It's who he is. It's who he is. The reason the name of Jesus is so sweet is be not simply because it is a strong tower, but the name is sweet because there is power in the name. The name is sweet because there is healing in the name. The name is sweet because there is mercy in the name. There is grace in the name. There is rescue in the name. There is salvation in the name of Jesus because Jesus knows how to save. And he is willing and he is able to save all those who call upon him. Even today, even now, would you be saved today? Would you be rescued today? Well, all I can tell you, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And there is no sweeter name in the name of Jesus. And there is no other hope and there is no other way. Would you be rescued from the judgment of your sin? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the only way. Call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Let's pray.